0: Lope at Large. I'm low- Lopit. Robert Henley has joined us many times on the show to discuss the news behind the news. He reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, including on a morning show he hosts here on WBAI called What's Going On. He writes for Salon, the Labor Press, and other news organizations. And he's the author of a book published by Democracy at Work called Stuck Nation Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show. Hi, Bob. Hey,
1: thanks for having me, Leonard.
0: Oh, Bob, you're one of the best guests we ever have. Uh, but <laughs> but didn't you have a four-day stay recently at your neighborhood hospital, the Jersey Shore University <clears throat> Medical Center? W- what was the problem?
1: Well, uh, funny, you should uh, get right down to the, uh, it's, uh, try to take a uh, sum of 66 years of health, and uh, I guess about, oh, maybe a month ago, I had had, like, a significant angina attack that was a new thing. Turned out I had a 90% blockage in my uh, Widowmaker coronary artery. Uh, 25, 30 days later, uh, had another uh, episode uh, and then ended up with, I guess, like, a garage door opener in my chest. So I have a defibrillator and pacemaker. That's the Reader's Digest version.
0: Okay, but you're okay now. Uh, I am. Interestingly, um, that led to something else because you witnessed some rather disturbing actions by a fellow patient. What was he yeah, doing? I did. And, and what was he doing? And how common is that sort of thing?
1: Well, it's it's funny because we're saying this, of course, with a Worker Memorial Day tomorrow on the the twenty eighth of. Uh, april uh which marks around the world the individuals who've lost their life or become disabled as a consequence of working Mm -hmm. to support their families so uh what happened here was that uh first of all jersey is a wonderful hospital great union staff there, HPAE, wonderful people great uh, care but it had been a private room that uh i guess through the pandemic uh uh, hack and tech meridian had divided into two uh, and then kept it that way so it was kind of tight and, um, and just being respectful of the person, the person was uh, elderly in very rough shape, uh, wanted to be respectful of it. But what I did witness was that every time that the nurses tried to do something to help him, he would tear out this through that. And then around the clock, uh, basically undo the nursing that had been done. And when they came in to administer and help him, uh, which included, you know, he wasn't able to go to the restroom himself. Uh, regularly changing everything about his his situation, redressing him, bathing him, uh, he would he would swat at them, and and they'd have to say so patiently, so kindly, mm-hmm. please don't hit me. And this was <laughs> something that happened throughout the entire time that I was there, and it was something that gave me a newfound respect. I've been covering frontline healthcare workers for decades, but this experience, uh, I just don't know how these people do it, and and with a kind word. Uh, every time, well, and has, so as go ahead. No, finish. No, I was just saying this. You know, I had known the data points, right? I mean, we do these stories perennially, uh, but it, it is now. It's been an epidemic. It's gotten even worse uh, during the uh, the pandemic. Uh, there is clearly something afoot here, and it's not uh, it's uh, healthcare workers, but also, strangely enough transit workers we see Mm. emts being acted out on this is really a serious problem well
0: it as you point out it happened even before the pandemic but there's been an uptick in workplace violence resulting in in serious injury and lower morale that's that's targeted healthcare workers um uh do they just quit what 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 they are does it have on them yeah
1: well one of the things that's happening is that uh, part of uh, and we'll get into this a little later but we're in a situation of uh, uh, I would say, a seismic change, uh, something that happens, a reorganization of the workforce, which is really challenging capitalism. Consider that according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 47 million Americans left their job last year. Mm. And we're seeing this particular fatigue uh, in the healthcare field. I mean, one of the things that uh, all throughout the pandemic, um, the healthcare unions, uh, and we've talked about this before. This is familiar territory to regular listeners. But imagine how frustrating it is. As a nurse, you go to school, you learn that, for instance, an N95 mask uh, is war- is to be worn and disposed of after each clinical encounter with a potentially infectious person. Along comes the CDC in the midst of a national emergency, and because a lack of Preparation and profound corruption throughout the government. We don't have any PPE because the inherent corruption in market capitalism with real time delivery. We don't have that. So what does the CDC do? It tells nurses to ignore their training hmm. and that they are now to adopt uh, their uh, N95 mask and take it with them back and forth to uh, to to work in a lunch in their in a, in a separate brown bag. Now this at the time at the time. The nurse unions predicted that a few things would happen. One would be that they would fall ill, that they would get sick, that the hospitals would become a vector for the disease, and that the uh, pandemic would would uh, would mushroom. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. In fact, every time that healthcare unions have warned about something that the corporate state wanted to do, for instance, lifting the mask mandate, you may remember in May, the CDC. I don't know if they're trying to help out President Biden, but they said, anybody who's vaccinated, go ahead. You don't need to wear that mask when you're going into the store. And the unions, the retail unions, the nurses unions all said, please don't do that. In many communities, a majority of people aren't vaccinated. You might give way to another variant. Hello, Delta. Hello, Omicron. I mean, this is the problem when workers are not at the table.
0: And we'll get into uh, long COVID in a, a moment. But beyond the mask, you report that according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, almost three quarters of the nation's workplace injuries due to violence occur in healthcare settings. Yeah. Now, is <laughs> it's, there it's, any it's is insane. there any explanation for that? Because according to the Emergency Nurses Association, now. Years into the pandemic, violence against healthcare workers has reached epidemic proportions, with that workforce accounting for half of all the victims of workplace violence.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that there's a, a, it's no accident that we have a healthcare system that's so compartmentalized. And so, first, you have to do like um, roots uh, cause analysis. So, you're going into a situation where people are, uh, usually, uh, when they're in the healthcare system, because we don't have proactive, generally proactive healthcare, um, we go there when we're in crisis, and so people are going into these environments that uh, where they know that a lot of money's at stake. They uh, have usually not done the preventative care that's required, so they're anxious, and then we also are in a state of um, uh, where there's not the kind of support or, or um, you know, services available. So when people arrive at the hospital, that's usually at the breaking point of a family. And so add in that all kinds of addiction issues, um, all kinds of dysfunctionality in society at large, and it's all compressed in the healthcare setting. It's the same thing we see in some way in the public spaces and subways, right? We see that wherever this public space is, the starving of things like public health for decades, the lack of attention to this, the basic uh, commonwealth has resulted in these stressed out situations where people feel they have no alternative, and it boils over in the emergency room. Well,
0: according to surveys by the American College of Emergency Physicians and the Emergency Nurses Association, almost half of emergency physicians report being physically assaulted, at work, while about seventy percent emergency nurses report being hit and kicked while on the job. Now, I have not been reading about this in the New York Times. Has it <laughs> been reported on much?
1: It, it is. I will tell you that uh, if you um, MedPage, which I is a great source uh, in the trade journals, it shows up. If you're uh, engaged as as I am with the frontline responders, EMTs, FDNY, local 2507, local 3621, that's in New York, around the country. Uh, I did a piece, I think one of the pieces that had the most uh, uh, traction in mind was a, a piece that looked at EMS assaults uh, in the United States. And it, ju- it, it I just got so much feedback because for whatever reason, um, we... We don't look at the, the details. Uh, working people do not find their stories, their experience in, in the national narrative. I mean, we'll talk about Elon Musk all day long, but the experience of your local emergency room physician or your local EMT uh, uh, very rarely breaks through. And that's why it's so important, like programs like this, where we can, have, where they have at least a piece of the narrative.
0: Well, since you bring up Elon Musk, what's your take on all of that? Because uh, the way it's been reported on has been rather confusing.
1: Yeah, I I would sort it out. I mean, first of all, you have to look at the fact that you're taking tens of billions of dollars uh, that he's going to throw at this to take it private. So where is the, me, where that, are those tens of billions
0: coming from? His, his private bank yeah. account or from yeah, yeah. Or not Bitcoin from, coin from Tesla? Or whatever.
1: Right, right. What you have here is increasing concentration of wealth being able to dominate the public space. And so it's also important to point out, as has been done by others, that Twitter is relatively small. I mean, those of us in the media, we speak to each other with it, but in terms of the broader society, uh, it's small relative to the size of, say, Facebook. But what it represents, though, to me is the fact that all of this should have been seen as a utility. That's the other thing. is like we've gotten so far away from the, the public doctrine that uh, basically, the, you know, the FCC and all broadcast licenses and the idea of mass communication was tightly regulated. And the presumption, and it's kind of oddly progressive for the United States, was that the airwaves and that the license to broadcast, that all of that belonged to the public. And somehow deregulation has given social media a special cul-de-sac from that. So it's real estate. And so I'm concerned that any one individual could own that much real estate of really what could be a public asset and utility. And it's time to look at these big internet companies and regulate them just like we would our utility. I mean, that was the model that was successful that gave the United States universal phone access until they decided to break it up and privatize it and make so much money for just a few people.
0: But, Bob, looking at the current political situation, I'm worried about who would regulate it.
1: Well, I I think that it is. there's precedent for it. I mean, we've managed to uh, regulate uh, utilities, and we regulated until they decided to break up AT&T. I mean, this is something that uh, we've seen that the Senate and the House have entirely become, with a very few exceptions, captive of corporate interests. So what we saw all through the 90s, deregulation of trucking, NAFTA, I mean, the, all, just all of it, that entire architecture was about making the world safe for the accumulation of massive amounts of capital the purpose of the United States in all of its iterations was to amass huge amounts of capital. And the pandemic is a logical consequence of what happens when you strip away all kinds of public investment and you have an inverted pyramid that shatters. That's where we are now. For three years running up to this, we had a decline in life expectancy. Now it's another nosedive. The society is not working. Over a million people are at least have died from COVID. Tens of millions have been infected. According to the GAO, 23 million Americans have been affected by long COVID, and a million have been forced out of the workplace. Where's that on the front page of The Times?
0: Bob Henley is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large, on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And I want to get into... Uh, long COVID. But uh, in another health care story, didn't you talk with American Federation of Government Employees Local 2094 President uh, George Jones, um, right. the, the the president and also former Congressman Max Rose about the impact of a Trump era proposal to reorganize the nation's largest health care system? What, yeah, did, you uh, learn? what yeah, did you learn yeah. from that?
1: Well, that, was, that was something that uh, just kind of blew me away. Uh, we so focus on on the personality of Trump, that the legacy of uh, malfeasance that really percolated throughout the bureaucracy. I mean, you let a, uh, someone like this, the vandal, into the federal government that had a lot of problems to begin with, and you let them hatch there for four years, there's all kinds of structural damage. One of the landmines he put in there was a bill that he got passed through Congress, through the libertarian kind of, co-kind of, let's privatize everything, uh, approach to government was a provision that the VA back in 2018 would reset the entirety of the VA system which is by the way the biggest piece of America's healthcare that's a huge system that serves our our veterans right and so they were going to re you know like have new re, uh, freshly rationalize it which meant closing facilities and Manhattan and Brooklyn, and in other places, and I guess have veterans go to New Jersey. Now, I like New Jersey. I'm in New Jersey, but I don't think that's a great idea. And so this thing has a life of its own. People elect a Democrat uh, for the White House, and they put Democrats in control nominally for what it's worth in the House and Senate, and yet this thing is ticking along. And if it wasn't for the American Federation of Government Employees and conscientious people like Max Rose, this thing would get through the infield so now people have to organize and save their local va clinics and their local hospitals because the reality is we've not done an after-action report about why this pandemic was so deadly and why the united States' performance was so abysmal and we don't want to ask those questions yes we'd rather i mean don't get me wrong what's happening in ukraine is terrible but we do not want to ask the question about how the profound failure of America's healthcare system set us up for this mass death event, and a piece of that would be doing any damage to the VA. And this is something that, if you're not paying close attention, I don't think it made any stories anywhere.
0: Now, not just the VA. Isn't uh, the National Worker Memorial Day coming up soon? Has yeah, the... tomorrow. Okay, that's. I thought it was Friday, but okay. Has the AFL CIO released its annual death on on the job report?
1: Yeah, they did, and it was uh, the results of it are just. I mean, it's 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 and the data, by the way, because we didn't even keep track of the numbers uh, that were being generated by COVID. We don't even have. Any actual numbers there?
0: Well, we have um, uh, we're closing in on one million COVID deaths, and
1: right, tens right, we know, that but, we know
0: that, but many have been underreported, Is well, it
1: right? And then also, we don't know what we uh, like. For instance, we know that through the Kaiser Health and the Guardian, they looked at one year, the first year of the pandemic, they found that 3,600 healthcare professionals in the United States died from their occupational exposure. We do know that several hundred firefighters around the country died. Uh, from their COVID exposure, this many of these deaths before the vaccine was available. We also know that uh, death from COVID and on-the-job exposure was the, uh, the most likely cause of death of law enforcement officers across the country. Mm-hmm. We also know that in hospitals, VA hospitals, this was a major issue, prisons. I mean, you name it, wherever there was, congregant facilities, nursing homes, but aside from that, just without taking, taking COVID out, 340 workers die each day from hazardous working conditions. 4,764 workers were killed on the job in the United States outside of COVID. This, I think, is 2020 numbers. An estimated 120,000 workers died from occupational diseases a year, not including COVID. So, And this, of course, for Latino and Black workers, remain at a greater risk of dying on the job than all workers. So what you see here is that this is what's driving this, this thing you can see from space, which is over 40 million Americans walking away from their job. Because which kind, which jobs
0: the, are the most dangerous?
1: Well, it shows on this graph, it has, uh, not a surprise, but timber, mining, um, uh, hunting, things are out in the natural world. Uh, you know, things like forest firefighting. Uh, but then you do see um, a lot of stuff related to heat in warehouses. Um, you have, of course, uh, and this is where my own anecdotal reporting, and this isn't included in, in the national survey from the AFL. So because the data is still floating out there, we do know that for meat plant workers, that COVID was deadly. Uh, we know that that even had an impact on the USDA inspectors in those plants. Mm. So. We're clearly talking about and it's very important we get this number uh, because it's not just that we should have a memorial for those people that put themselves uh, secondary to keeping things going for the rest of us and put their families at risk. We need to know where these people died so that we can make the places where they work safer. But isn't we the, do know? Isn't the CDC
0: right? working on a, a national analysis of COVID deaths based on the they observational are. exposure to people who've died to better understand the impact of COVID on essential they, workers in their
1: communities? They 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 are, but the thing is that, uh, and it's not a. I think we broke that news uh, a couple of months ago. But mm-hmm. it's a it's a uh, uh, it is a survey and it's being done, but it's the kind of thing where people have to be aware and also follow it and hold them accountable. I mean, the CDC, as we've seen, it can be, you know, it's subject to political pressure. So yes, that's happening. Congress directed them to do it, but it's important for it also to be done at the local level, and at the state level for accountability. I mean, We know, and and those of us in New York and New Jersey know this because of what happened with the 9-11 World Trade Center issue. Mm. It's very important for the grassroots to be involved, to witness for our colleagues who we've lost. Uh, Those of us who remember 2001, 2002, 2003, the powers that be did not come up and concede, oh yeah, that's right. The air was tough to breathe down there. Yeah, people died. No, that's not how it happened. It was because the public unions... And, uh, and the building trade unions, the TWU, the firefighters unions, uh, DC 37, tried to hold the powers to be accountable for the lie the EPA told that the air was safe to breathe. And hence, out of that, we got the Zadroga Act, which we have to fight for perennially. And so we now know that as a consequence of that lie from the EPA, more people have died from the occupational exposure that came out of Christy Todd Whitman's misrepresentation about the era, then died the day of the attack. We know that 80,000, 90,000 people are enrolled in the World Trade Center program as a consequence of activism and people collectively pulling together. I submit to you, that's what's going to have to happen with covid The entire United States.
0: Well, we're still seeing commercials on television uh, addressing people who may have been affected by the 9/11 attacks, uh, health-wise. So, I that that's been going on for a long
1: time. Well, and it has to because those are lawyers. yeah, Michael Barish, uh, that's one of the major, uh, major players in that space. Uh, and then there's 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 quite a few practitioners. But and one of the things though, I would also uh, in those ads, it says, where you south of Canal Street? Uh, then you may be eligible for the World Trade Center fund and Victor's uh, compensation fund. It's also important to tell listeners that. As a practical matter, uh, you may not be eligible for money from the Victims' Compensation Fund, but if you were working or lived south of Houston Street, which is a good deal farther north than now, and including Western Brooklyn, you can be eligible for World Trade Center Health Program health care if you have symptoms related to some 70 different cancers. And one of the realities about this is that Giuliani and his desire to keep the economy open. Uh, we went along with this whole EPA fiction that came out of the George Bush administration to keep Wall Street open. They had 19,000 school kids go back into dozens of schools in the hot zone. So the reason why uh, uh, there was such a big fight to push out this drug of funding to 2090 is that we have people like uh, Nyla Nordstrom, who is from the, the wonderful, uh, she was a senior at Stuyvesant High School. She started this national movement called Sti Health. Uh, they're trying to connect with all of these young people who, in good faith, their parents sent into the schools. And now we're finding out are having serious health issues. So this is a long horizon line here. We're talking about only 10 percent of the civilian respond of the civilians. Uh, non-responders who lived and worked on there have participated in the program. So there's a lot of people who in the midst of this pandemic could have some remedy through the World Trade Center and Health Program, indeed may be suffering and aren't aware of it.
0: Well, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones because I worked at City Hall at the time. And uh, I actually witnessed one of the planes going into one of the towers as I was walking to work that day. Uh, so uh, but I, so far, I haven't come down with any illness. So I guess uh, it did. Did you they, register? I never registered because uh, I've never felt that there was a problem.
1: Well, and so, I mean, that's part, part of the challenge here is that, I mean, I, I always wondered about that, uh, about whether WNYC uh, proactively asked. I mean, I was at Pacifica when 9-11 happened. I came over to WNYC after 9-11. But i always wondered if the station had taken the proactive step of asking employees to no, be screened. They didn't. So that—that's—that's a serious issue. Moved, fact, They yeah. just simply moved. They uh,
0: just uh, simply moved to other places to broadcast from. We wound up at KCR for a
1: while. Right. And, and so I would say to you that it's very important for nonprofits. I mean, I was at uh, 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 Michael Barrish had a uh, and a, several other community-based groups had a wonderful. A town hall meeting at borough manhattan community college and the auditorium was filled because there were so many students think about it that were going to the school at pace at at uh at the bureau uh, borough manhattan community college and other institutions who were all exposed so this is really important for community outreach i would really there are some great groups online um that you would find that are community-based or non-profit that can help steer you to these benefits. But particularly in light of the pandemic, uh, there is some potential that people that had World Trade Center under underlying pulmonary and respiratory issues, it could be um, made even worse by, by COVID. So they really should try to access this, uh, this program. They should try to direct message me, by the way, through Twitter, at Stuck Nation, if they have any questions.
0: And what is the current state now? Uh, is there is there money available to those people?
1: There, there is. There's still the World Trade Center Health Program, uh, and it's it's. Uh, but there is a need to have uh, uh, one of the. There's like four or five billion dollars that's necessary to make it robust, not in the short term, but in the midterm. And that kind of got caught up. It's one of the casualties of of Mansion and Cinema uh, messing around with the Build Back Better bill. Strangely enough. Uh, It's coincidental, but also uh, the Black Lung Fund and the rest of the funding from World Trade Center are hung up in uh, the failure of um, of uh, Biden to deliver on this. So there's efforts to break those bills out to make sure that we do have that funding that's responsible because uh, that that would help meet this need. It's it's really critical.
0: Uh, Kim Gaddy, the National Environmental Justice Director for Clean Water Action and Dr. Robert Lumbach a physician and environmental and occupational health expert based at Rutgers School of Public Health, discuss with you their efforts to stop the construction by the Passaic Valley Sewerage Commission of a a massive gas-powered generation facility in Ironbound. What's the problem there?
1: Well, this this goes back to um, Sandy. And so uh, you may remember back in 2013, that infrastructure that was on the coast, while, while we focus on the Jersey Shore, because the pictures of the roller coaster in the Jersey Shore grabbed the, the international imagination, some of the most serious damage was done in the urban waterfront. And so you had a 12, 13 foot storm surge, like a, a tsunami, basically take out water treatment plants up and down, uh, particularly in the mid Atlantic. And so the Saint Valley uh, Sewerage Commission. Uh, treats the uh, human waste and and uh, commercial waste of about one and a half million people in several counties along the Passaic Valley that enter into the, uh, ultimately into the New York Bay complex. And so when that storm surge came in, it knocked out the power. Uh, it was a disaster, particularly for Ironbound, where it's located. Uh, we also know, for instance, that uh, because of the Way that Exxon and Standard Oil had destroyed so much of the wetlands, there was no barrier around the Big Bayway refinery. So you may remember that we went, we lost the refinery because there was no redundancy there, and so we had to ration, you know, even odd days in terms of access to gasoline. Uh, but the case of the Pase Valley Sewer Authority, they're saying that they can, um, they need a backup uh, generator to make them uh, resilient. They they think that $140 million uh, fossil fuel gas power generators is a way to do it. Uh, there's pushback from Ironbound because they already have uh, childhood asthma rates that are sky high, some of the highest in the nation. And they put together a coalition of 130 uh, uh, nationally recognized experts uh, that are basically saying that this area can't handle this anymore and that there are other uh, more climate friendly ways to have uh resilience built in now ironically uh 2020 in the throes of the pandemic governor murphy signed legislation that was going to limit the location of these kinds of uh uh toxic um infrastructure in communities of color that have traditionally borne the burden of them and now uh he's being put to the test because this seems to fly right in the face of that legislation
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob Henley, who uh, is a a broadcaster here at WBAI, but also the author of a a book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course in Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, uh, published by Democracy at Work. Uh, And uh, he's a regular contributor to this show, and we just love talking with him because he (laughs) is he knows so much about all the important things that are not being reported. For example, you've reported, Bob, that there's little media appetite to take an in-depth look at the pre-existing social conditions that set the stage for the COVID mass death event in which poor people of color died at an exponentially higher rate than wealthy whites, both in your home state of New Jersey, but also throughout the country.
1: Yeah, that was the result of uh, a report done by Jeffrey Sachs from uh, Columbia, The Economist, and, and working in uh, collaboration with uh, the Poor People's Campaign and uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Barber's uh, efforts. Uh, that's supposed to, that will culminate in the March June eighteenth in Washington for low wealth and and. Uh, he, Families that are struggling.
0: The Reverend William yeah. J. Barber's Poor People's Campaign released the first of its kind comprehensive study of COVID deaths in over 3,000 U.S. counties uh, and yeah. uh, pointed out that poverty, income, race and geography
1: played a role. Yeah, it's a, it could be used as a heat map. In fact, if we if this country was really trying to, you know, uh, be honest with itself, it would do exactly that because when you look at the data, it's very clear that the places that had been starved of resources were exactly the places where you had the high incidence of chronic disease, heart disease, diabetes. Um, and that was the place that we've also seen the, the closing of hospitals. I mean, it's really just jumps out at you. I, I remember um, doing a story about one, an FDNY EMT who died uh, uh, before he could retire, uh, was certainly served for a long time. Uh, and I spoke to his uh, commanding officer and he served in Queens his entire career. And he said to me, you know, Elmhurst Hospital was the epicenter. It was a place that became the symbol for the world, for the disaster, for the tremendous pain that we've been through with all the deaths, the 18 wheelers filled with dead bodies. And when I was talking to uh, the officer, he said to me, you know, um, when he started, there were six or seven different hospitals within the area around Elmer's Hospital that closed before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is we have to own this. We have to own the fact that we rolled up critical health care in rural areas and in poor urban areas and that people died. This wasn't like a meteorological event. It was totally foreseeable.
0: Well, if you watch MSNBC or CNN, this is all the fault of the Republicans, but you said the Democrats who controlled Congress couldn't muster uh, the the, car, the courage to, to raise the $7.25 <laughs> federal minimum wage or, or continue the expanded child tax care credit, which had briefed, briefly lifted millions of children out of poverty.
1: It's It's uh, an indictment of the system. I mean, that's why, you know, I say stuck nation, and I keep hoping it's not going to be true. But the reality is that those two senators uh, derailed the Biden agenda. I know conventional wisdom is saying that as a consequence of just the normal uh, back and forth of politics, the Democrats will lose control of Congress. Uh, but I will tell you, there's a tremendous amount at stake.
0: You're talking about and Joe Manchin it, and Kirsten Cinema. Cinema,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that also I'm, I, I think is so discouraging is that there is a disconnect between the rhetoric of the politics, even on the left, and the ability to deliver for the people for whom they are obligated to serve. I'll give you a very good example. Uh, I found out I was called by Dr. Stephanie Hoops, who is the executive director of the National United Way Alice Project, which people who follow my work know is uh, a a program that's available in some, I think, 20 some odd states. It tracks um, people that aren't below the poverty line but struggle week to week. They call them asset limited income constrained, but employed. And actually, there are a huge chunk of the American population in New Jersey, some 30 some odd percent of households are in this struggling week to week situation and COVID was particularly hard on these folks. And she said to me, you know, Bob, we don't, this is crazy, but we're realizing that 5 million single parent households have yet to collect $14 billion that's sitting in the U S treasury as a result of the passage last year, of the expanded tile tax credit. Now, it's just sitting there.
0: there it's no, sitting there. There's no process for dispensing the money?
1: That, well, no, people, the work is, if you really care about these people, like my brother Christopher, who is a, a former Franciscan who's got a storefront up in Rochester, he does has a business model. He does income taxes for working people who have you know like a carpenters and small businesses they pay then he gives it away. I love the guy. He's more generous than I am. Anyway, he told me about this. He gave me the tip. He was saying that people who are I think about it. If you're stressed trying to support your family and you're doing it by yourself, you you don't you don't you, you may not have banking online banking. I mean, the rebuilding a nation is rebuilding households. It means actually rolling your sleeves up and helping people get this money. It could be $3,600 per child. And so uh, that requires actual outreach because people. there's a lot of reasons why people may not be getting this money. One of the reasons may be they may be undocumented, but their kids may be American citizens. They're afraid, still living in fear from Trump, that if they don't, if they file for it, they'll be deported. Then you have people that don't have access to banking People that people that have don't have Wi-Fi access, people that don't have the technical savvy to be able to have direct deposit. I mean, if we really care about these people, I have to give AOC props. You go to her website. There's a guide there. Yes, it has a picture for holding a baby. She's a politician. Fine. But you can calculate what you're owed and it takes you through the steps to get it.
0: There's been a slew of disastrous fires in our area recently. What did the New York City Council member Joanne Ariola, the, the chair of the Fire and Emergency Management Committee, say about how a Bloomberg-era decision to reduce firefighting engine crews from five to four firefighters has left New York City's poorest communities more vulnerable to mass casualty fires like the Twin Parks fire in the Bronx that killed 17 people, including eight children?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, it's been a, so, you know, it's, it's not so, it's a basic situation where over the years, back to the 1980s, the concept was you needed five firefighters per engine in order to get established a water line. Uh, it degraded over time as the the fire department's never been as good at the police department at getting resources. You know, there's a joke in the fire department that when the police department asks for a dollar, they get five. When the fire department asks for a dollar, they get 50 cents. There's a lot of Catholic guilt with the fire department. They'll make do. Uh, and that's kind of what's happened here. And so in the case of um, the Twin Parks fire, uh, what the council member Ar- 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 really skillfully brought out at this hearing, on the direct examination of uh the fire department was that in the initial response to that terrible fire uh, in january um there were there would have been uh it was deprived of the response didn't have four firefighters initially and so that means they need the second engine company to come to be able to hook up a line and so that's how the fire departments historically worked on it so it's one of these Bloomberg things that was penny-wise and pound-foolish. Yeah, on you know on paper, we reduce the cost of operating, it, da, 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 until you then take it to the next step and say, well, tell me, so when did you actually get water on the fire? Oh, well, we had to wait for the second engine. We never talked about that. And so, in essence, what happens is uh, firefighters are put at risk because they don't have the number of people they need, because this is a vertical city, and, and you need, particularly in areas where you have high-density housing, where we know the building code's not been enforced, these need to be special care places. And we need to make sure that we have what's required to make up for capitalism's disinvestment in these places.
0: And the the FDNY's highest-ranking officer recently told the city council that if the department's five fire per engine staffing had been in effect during the Twin P- uh, Parks high-rise fire, there would have been four additional firefighters on the scene. So, so many of the stories that we're reporting have to do with the fact that we've been cutting back on funding for things. Is the country uh, going through an economic crisis that has led us to do that?
1: Well, as I said in the beginning, all things have been put in the service of amassing fortunes. And so Which Bloomberg boom- had. He was mayor at the time. And so everything was in his likeness and image. And hmm. so the same pyramid scandal. I mean, it's no accident that America's taxation system punishes working stiffs and rewards idle capital. It's very simple. This is what it's about. It's about building massive concentrations of wealth. And so now it's done it to such an extreme that this underlying infrastructure that carries whole society has cracked, and you can see it. And as a consequence, we're seeing the the results of it, and it's no surprise. And so it doesn't surprise me, for instance, that when they talked about Build Back Better, that all of a sudden everybody in in the Beltway was talking about the cost, and they weren't talking about the cost we've already experienced for the disinvestment Hmm. that's come over the last 30 years, of nibbling at all of these critical paths. I mean, I mean, things like um, I did this story uh, in Baltimore just recently. We had three firefighters die because they went to fight a fire in a zombie home that collapsed on them. Mm-hmm. So here they are trying to prevent, and that's a case where it was close and it was like row housing, so they had to go in and put their life at risk. But imagine we so value property that we let it stand in its decrepit state And the state will protect this cynical exploitation of capitalists to hold on to things in decrepitude, even if it means we sacrifice our youngest and bravest. That's the American equation we're not talking about.
0: You're listening to Let it Low, Pit at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest today, one of our regulars on the show, is Bob Henley. Um, Amazon has been in the news a lot recently, uh, partly because of unionization efforts, but a, coal- a coalition of the nation's largest public pension funds, with billions of dollars in Amazon stock, is urging shareholders to reject the re-election of a pair of longtime corporate directors who oversee Amazon's workplace and compensation policies. At, at the uh, the corporation's upcoming shareholder meeting on on May twenty fifth, why?
1: Well, I, I think this is uh, this is uh, got some real potential power here. So there was a Harvard Club meeting. Brad Lander was the keynote. Uh, we had Chris he's the New York City controller. Controller, right? right. Uh, Chris Mall is the organizer of the Ameri- of the Amazon Labor Union and several other of of uh, his. Uh, Uh, of the leader organizers, and also interestingly in the room were representatives uh, that were like statewide elected pension representatives. So we have Tom DiNapoli from New York State. Uh, He put a statement in support. He wasn't there. And then there was like the treasurer of Delaware, treasurer of uh, Massachusetts, a number of other luminaries. They represented collectively $2 trillion investments under management. So that's a pretty big stake. So now what they're talking about is, there are two directors, Locker and McGrath, who are responsible uh, on the committee that sets compensation for Amazon, which has included taking $412 million and giving it to the top five executives, including $212 million in deferred compensation to Andrew Jassy, the CEO. That's a 6471 to $1 ratio to the median employee salary. Now, moreover these people are also responsible for some of the anti-labor policies that really put that that killed workers at at amazon i mean and yet yet the new york
0: city retirement system and the new york state common retirement fund hold 1.7 million shares of amazon
1: stock well this is where this is where the potential is you could get to vote those shares and so that's what this is about. This, in some ways, considering how uh, ineffective and compromised Congress is, this may offer us another front. The reality is that retired people who have uh, stock holdings anyone, the church, a nonprofit, any group that has any stock holdings they do have the opportunity to vote by proxy to vote to support shareholder resolutions. It's one other aspect of American capitalism. It's not widely known but people need to use all the tools available. I would say that um, my wife Debbie was involved with this movement as when she was at UVA Law School with disinvestment for South Africa, right? That was uh, back in the day, the realization of a connection between market capitalism and holding uh, companies accountable. That worked in that case. Uh, this is a similar move here. The idea is use the huge clout of the collective pensions and savings for retirees um, uh, in, and, and society in general, to leverage and hold accountable corporations. And there is some sign that that can work. And that's, I mean, we, we have to try it, certainly.
0: When I look at these numbers and then think of how little WBAI needs to just <laughs> keep on going and how difficult it is for us to get the funding we need, I just wonder whether <laughs> we're not living in a totally screwed up society here.
1: Yeah, I would say so. Uh, But again, the fact is that we have been here. uh, And uh, I don't know if it's pitch time, but certainly. It's going um, to be soon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that uh, the fact we've been able to have this conversation through the entirety of the pandemic uh, Mm. is just very special to me. Leonard, I want to thank you for this opportunity because, you know, it has been a consistent place to bring this stuff forward. And uh, it's given me – You've created a community here, and, and, I, and I really value that, and I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I, I think it's important for us to discuss the things that are not really being talked about enough but are important uh, to uh, our everyday lives, and that's why I love the things that you write about. Have we missed something in, in the, the, the two or three minutes that we have left? Is there something else I should have addressed?
1: Uh, no, I would just say that uh, we've got to stay focused on this accountability issue related to what it costs essential central workers uh, in terms of uh, COVID and long-haul COVID. And that even means sometimes holding unions accountable. It means that uh, ret- uh, people that are suffering with long-haul COVID need to be supported, mm-hmm. and they need to know that the unions are going to go to bat for them because we're now going to start seeing brave VMTs. Uh, who have limited sick time, only 12 or 13 days, they're going to have to be forced out of their jobs because of, unlike firefighters who have unlimited sick time.
0: Well, long COVID has potentially affected up to 23 million Americans, according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office. That's Uh, right. And uh, that, an estimated 1 million people
1: have been pushed out of work as a result. And that's why this screams for universal health care. This has got to be the top topic. I hope we can come back at some point and talk about that. There's ambivalence in the labor movement, in New York State Health Act. We're seeing unions on the wrong side of history. Some of them are fighting back because they feel that they didn't get the bonuses or raises over their careers. And instead, they got health care. And they can't seem to take the wider view that that means that people's in their, people in their extended family and neighborhood don't have health care. Mm-hmm. So we've got to end this ration system. I mean, I think that's really the most important issue and really you see it's dropped off the radar.
0: So if people want to, uh, learn what you're talking about when you're not on the show or you're <laughs> not doing your radio show, what's going on. That's Monday mornings.
1: Yeah. Monday mornings at 7am to 8am and, uh, right before democracy now. And, uh, then also at Stuck Nation is my Twitter handle. I'm at Labor Press, I have a city hall desk there. Um, I can always be reached through through Twitter and you can also direct message me through Facebook. I'm always interested in following up on stories, uh, I, but the best stories I get are ones that are brought to, by, by people that are paying attention and wanna make a difference.
0: And I hate to ask you this question, but is your book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work, is that available on Amazon?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, it is. But but I also want to just say I've made this offer before and it still stands. Uh, anybody who wants to be, uh, you know, if you need any inducement to, to be a, a BA buddy, the magic two 209 2950 number. Uh, I will send you personally, mail you uh, if you join the Leonard uh, Lopate uh, community through being a B.I. buddy. For how much? Personally, I I think seventy five dollars is what it's queued up for. Well, it's Uh, yeah, because it's ten dollars or more a month. Right. So either way, uh, if it's in Leonard Lopate's name, I will mail it to you personally. That's right. You can count on that. Uh, uh, Stuck Nation, can the United States change course on our history of choosing profits over people? In your mailbox delivered by the U.S. Postal Service, all you got to do is call.
0: And we're also going to send you a WBAI tote bag if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more a month. <laughs> Bob, All right. Are we are we done? <laughs> I, I, we're kind of done. If there's you want to say anything in closing, I'm happy to give you another half minute or a minute. Or so. OK,
1: oh, that's great. Now, I just uh, I would also just say that I do think that uh, particularly in this period of time, we're in the first year of the Adams administration. It's just so critically important uh, that people support the station. Uh, uh, this space are you like surprised this.
0: at how bad Kathy Hochul's ratings are right now?
1: No, I'm not. I'm not. I, I would say She seems that, to be uh, doing a, a reasonable job. But that, that thing with the Buffalo Bills that she has a tenure, this is a case of someone that really hasn't internalized the lessons of a mass death event. That is a really pre-COVID thing. Let's build a football stadium and give a billionaire hundreds of millions of dollars. That's really pre-COVID, man. Mm. It's just a loser.
0: Bob, thank you so much for being on our show again. We'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks. Bye. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out some more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of nearly 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbaiorg That's give, and then the number 2wbai.org, or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to help keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And as uh, Bob Henley suggested, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, which allows us to plan for the future, what we call a BAI buddy, and that begins at $10 or more a month. And if you, you do it at one of the higher levels, um, Bob will be happy to send you a copy of his book. Uh, which is uh, called, one of the longer titles, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? Um, Whatever you do, the important thing is to show your support because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if Leonard Paid at large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it? Uh, you can do that again by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of London located Lodge at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when our gurus of how-to, Alan, Larry, Bell, will be taking your calls about home repair problems. We'll see you then.